Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you're listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. Today, I'm joined by Claudia Sestini, Global Chief Marketing Officer at WPP brand Gain Theory. Claudia has a track record of growth and leadership drawn from 20 years of experience in media, entertainment, and advertising. She previously worked at Paramount, where she led the marketing campaigns for shows such as Scrubs, Two and a Half Men, Sex in the City, and South Park. Claudia, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been really looking forward to the conversation. I guess a brilliant place to start amongst all of that experience that you offer is your most memorable career moments today. You know, even when going back to Paramount, some of the brands you develop, but what are the highlights that you pick out from your uh, excellent career so far? Yeah, Sean, thanks. I'm so excited to be here, Peter, and have this conversation. I think... There have been some really exciting highlights. You know, I've worked for Maxim magazine. I've worked back in the in the day, sort of men's lifestyle magazines and 14 Times and launched Comedy Central and worked a bit at MTV, but also now working at Game Theory, as you mentioned, WPP brand. It's interesting because one would think that the most exciting kind of highlights of the career kind of came from the sexier brands, right? The the MTVs, the the scrubs. I think actually Game Theory is probably one of the most transformative stories that I want to sort of delve into. Like probably the highlight is going from a agency, a brand that it wasn't even a brand back in uh, when I joined 11 years ago, but an agency that dealt with econometrics and then nowadays is known as a marketing effectiveness consultancy that accelerates growth for ambitious brands with, you know, $1.6 billion in client value delivered globally across 111 markets. I mean, that's that's kind of quite a, a big growth transformation story. And for me, that sort of stuff excites me, sort of an 11-year tenure at the company and story of growth. And we can sort of delve into, you know, the stuff that sort of went into sort of building that. At Comedy Central, I have to say, you know, when I joined what was called MTV Networks back then and now is called Paramount, the, the TV channel was actually called Paramount Channel. And my job was, again, to relaunch it. So my career is full of relaunches, rebrands. And so I relaunched it to Comedy Central, which in itself was a really fantastic job because, you know, it's a story of how you really leverage the power of brands because a lot of the shows that you mentioned, Scrubs, Sex and the City, Two and a Half Men, were also being shown on Channel 4. And actually, when we did the research before we launched to Comedy Central, people were saying, yeah, but, you know, I've watched these shows on Channel 4, but actually the ratings were showing that they were watching it on Comedy Central, which told us they had no brand affinity to Comedy Central, to to, the, to our channel. So that our job then was create a brand that could then have affinity with the products that were being shown on there. And that, for me, was really exciting because when we launched it during the recession in 2009, you know, the general sort of mood was very low. The UK needed laughter. It needed irreverence. You know, we did some really fun stuff like a ginormous 
Kenny from South Park being blown up and uh, pushed down the Thames River. That was pretty fun. And so, you know, it it had a massive impact, something like 69% growth year on year, uh, an increase in TV ratings. So that was, you know, pretty exciting. But game theory, I've got to say, is one of my proudest uh, moments, just because where we've sort of grown from and to. You were at WPP and then Game Theory was getting started a couple of years later. It sounds and looks like a very unique challenge. Ed's done before, and it'll be fascinating to hear what the biggest challenges have been en route to getting to that level of recurring revenue. Yeah. So by the way, the 1.6 billion is the value we've delivered to clients in terms sure. of their return on investment. Our revenues over sort of an 11 year period have grown about sort of sixfold. Um, and I can't share our revenues, but you know, delivering value to clients, that's where, you know, really that's made me incredibly happy because that's why we exist. You know, for me, when I joined the company, and you know, I'm just going to sort of describe it to you. I'd finished at MTV Paramount, and you know, it was a very sort of media orientated role. Like I say, quite sexy, quite interesting in terms of the brands that I was serving and the campaigns that I was running, and the size of the team as well. And this opportunity came up, and it was an econometrics agency. And you kind of go, well, how do you go from MTV to an econometrics agency? You know, what's the story there? And I looked at them, and they'd been running their services since the 1970s. They'd been giving advice to big global brands, you know, huge global well-known household names since the 1970s about how to measure the effectiveness of their marketing campaigns. But like their marketing was terrible. And I'm sure that, you know, our global CEO won't mind me saying that because that's why she hired me, right? Their website was terrible. The way they packaged themselves up wasn't, you know, great. They were very much selling their what versus their why, right? Simon Sinek's little quote there. But, you know, they were really kind of going to market, selling their product and not really selling their brand. So my job was really to to create a brand. And again, sort of starting with research and insight, no proper sort of market research had been run at that point around, you know, market needs, client needs. You know, we came up with these really interesting pain points that our customer was faced with, you know, needing uh, the pain points being sort of needing faster and smarter insights. So basically, as a marketer, my customer is B2C marketers and really helping them understand how well their marketing is doing or how well they need to optimize their their media uh, and actually overall business investments. You know, and loads of other pain points that then kind of pointed towards, okay, we are currently marketing ourselves as an econometrics agency. But what we really need to do is kind of package ourselves up as a marketing effectiveness and foresight consultancy. And actually, in 2015, when we launched Game Theory, the brand, it was actually packaged up as a foresight consultancy. It was a little bit too early to use that word back in 2015, but now is the right time. Hence why we're, we've sort of now used it. So obviously, having foresight, understanding what's coming next is really what it's all about at the moment. And really sort of taking the company 
through a journey of understanding how to, you know, go to market from a brand perspective, that upper funnel kind of making sure that we are building mental availability with our customers, making sure that we have lower funnel activities to generate short-term performance goals, you know, making sure that we are nurturing our clients through various thought leadership activities as well and everything in between you know the work that I do which I actually found hugely rewarding is also around people and culture you know bringing our talent to bear to the market so it's been an incredible journey. One of the things that I've seen businesses really get wrong over the years is rebranding so I want to come on to that but I think let's talk about the positioning of a global brand? And have there been any lessons that founders like myself, other people that are in CMO roles, CEO roles, about the way to make sure you're positioning correctly from a global brand perspective? So hopefully you don't have to do too much repositioning down the line, or maybe you've heard a a distinctly naive person involved there. But um, it'd be great to hear the lessons that that you've seen in industry over the years, Claudia, when it comes to that global positioning of of a brand. I've got so many lessons, Pete, and and lots of them from where, you know, I've had lots of failures along the way, right? I think number one, when you relaunch, reposition, rebrand, one of the important aspects that doesn't tend to get a lot of attention is actually bringing everybody within the business along with you on the journey, right? Because if you get that bit wrong, you haven't got your strongest advocates behind you. What I've seen very often and I've experienced, especially at Comedy Central, is where the marketing team goes off, they do their own thing, they might even be working closely with the CEO, right? And they're sort of creating the positioning, they're doing the research, you know, they get as far down the line as sort of planning the creative and the campaign, but they don't take people along with the journey. And it kind of comes to the nth hour, yeah, oh, we're sort of, um, this is our new look, this is our new feel, this is our positioning. And I think that can be really jarring from an internal perspective. You have to make sure that everybody is aligned internally across the whole organization. You know, when I was relaunching Comedy Central, you know, exactly that happened. We went off, we did our research, our qual, our quant, we engaged with an amazing creative agency. I'll give them a little shout out, Karma Rama, who did a fantastic job. We then presented the new creative internally probably about a month before we launched and it completely panned internally. And it panned to the point where we had to pull the campaign and actually redo the whole thing. So that gives you an idea. You've got the voice of the customer, but actually one of your customers and stakeholders are your employees, your colleagues, right? So that was sort of lesson number one and actually – you know, since then, every rebrand, every relaunch, every repositioning exercise, my thing has been take people on the journey step by step, show them the research, tell them what the customer is saying, you know, get their sort of feedback in terms of positioning as well. And so I think that's that's really important, bringing people along with you on the journey. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Before we get to number two, are we talking there about just making sure you've got a cross section of 
your organization that gets a voice? Is this, you know, like you hand pick certain individuals or is it a little bit more complex than that? <laughs> no, I'd say, I'd say you do have to have a, a cross section of individuals who are part of the projects and get a voice. However, at each milestone, you have to then communicate back to the whole business, right? The whole business so that they understand, you know, and your milestones are, you know, what's the customer research telling us? Because otherwise you get to the end point and you go, well, based on the customer research, you know, this is our positioning, this is our new language, et cetera, et cetera. But actually it takes people time to digest these things, to wrap their head around. If you do that at each milestone, really communicating the outputs, um, and I don't mean the granular details, I, I mean sort of the outputs of the research, you know, this is where we're at with the assets and just make sure you're holding people's hands along the journey so that nothing's a surprise internally until, you know, to the point when you've launched, you know, because then what you want when you've actually launched a new product is for your employees, again, your strongest advocates to be flying that flag because they want to, not because they've been told to, right? Move hearts and minds. Yeah, I mean, that, out of all the things that I've certainly learned in our growth so far, Claudia, I think the biggest thing has been that if you just dictate and this is how it's going to be, good luck. Whereas, you know, from a you know, marketing, branding, positioning perspective as well, it's like get some people involved. They're going to bring you ideas to the table. They co-create. And then guess what? When you roll it out and, and you communicate how these decisions have come about, you're likely to get a much better better ship behind you and with you along the way. Lesson number two, Claudia, what's, what's, the, what's the next ones that jump out? I think the next one is pretty obvious, but it's really important. And I think, you know, I've worked in the B2B marketing space now for 11 years, obviously prior to that B2C, but it's the whole point of research. I really think, you know, especially in B2B marketing, it's highly underrated. You do, you have to do your research, your customer research. You have to understand who you're serving, what the value is that you're bringing to them, what gap you're filling, and also the tone of voice. You know, you've, you kind of want to understand yourself, your personality as a brand, but then what's going to resonate? And it's kind of like what I call the the kind of value creation zone between what you want to achieve as a company and, you know, what, what your customer needs and you really need to sort of hone in on that value creation zone when you're when you're relaunching repositioning but i think a, an a, an underrated thing is actually also getting out of the office and speaking to your customer yourself right i hear this time and time again oh we've done lots of quanta we've engaged with this amazing research agency sure you need to do all of that get your quant get your qual get you know, away from your laptop, speak to your customer. And that applies to, to anything, right? You know, I used to <laughs> I used to at sort of all of our MTV festivals speak to, you know, MTV viewers, Comedy Central viewers. I want to speak to them, understand, you know, what makes them tick. I'm that weirdo, you know, in, in boots sometimes when I'm sort of like really curious about why someone picks up a bottle of shampoo and it is a bit sort of stalkerish, but I want to know what makes people tick. 
and understand what the psychology is. And in the B2B world, you know, having conversations with your customers, your clients is really, really important to understand what their pain points are, to understand what they're looking for, to even sort of when you do a rebrand, reposition, speak to your customers. Interesting, sort of actually going through a a brand refresh for Game Theory at the moment, we're about to relaunch our website. And that was part of that process, picking up the phone to some of our clients and going, what do you think, you know? I love these uh, colors and I love, you know, the way we're now talking about ourselves. But what does, how does this sound to you? Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I want to pull on that thread a little bit more, Claudia, if I may. One of the things that, as we all know, is that time is so limited for people. Mm. And it's the, the big firms that send out these mass surveys where you're kind of like, nope, going to ignore that. That looks horrible. Or yeah. actually getting the level of response rate when it comes to stuff that matters enormously to you but maybe isn't on their top 10 of their priorities list. And they're kind of like, oh, yeah, kind of. How do you guys go about making sure that you're hearing from the right level of customers? Is this, this, you know, your top 10 customers and you go out and actually have direct conversations about it? Is it wrapped up in other activity? That would be really interesting to know. Yeah, I mean, we do do quant research, of course, in terms of, you know, not these mass surveys, but really easy to sort of fill out um, surveys to get some data, right? I'm in, I'm in the data and analytics uh, world. This is my job day in, day out. So you do need the data to inform some of the decisions, but you really do have to have the qual and the conversations to, to enrich and to understand the why, the why behind what the data is telling you. You know, top customers across clients, across sectors, you know, all of them really across section but also globally because I think you made a point before in terms of global rebrand obviously the nuances from a geographical perspective are also important we've seen so many brands you know have gone to market with a message that works in the UK but actually completely pans in Saudi Arabia because it's you know culturally insensitive but you know I think you've got to sort of get out to your customer and you do also have to understand the local implications um so you end up having all these conversations about you know what will work globally what's your overarching position but then also understanding how that's messaging how that positioning works in different markets. I mean, Mm. we're a global organization. So, you know, what works in the US, what you amp up in the US, you know, you might amp down a bit in the UK. Maybe it's levels of maturity in each market, you know, but also cultural sort of differences. Then, you know, you kind of then, does that translate to Singapore or Australia or Germany or France, you know? So localization of brand strategy is also really important. I'm exactly beginning to see where some significant value from game theory, in addition to what I knew already was going to be, Claudia, because as you say, the fun bit when you're doing expanding business is going, oh, lovely, new geographies, new territories. But yeah. are you just trying to position yourself exactly the same in all places? Because if you are, maybe good luck a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there are some things that can do, but other things need to have a bit more thought, don't they, right? Exactly, yeah. One of the other areas that, I think is so important to cover with someone with your breadth of experience that are there any obvious marketing errors that with companies that you see, you've been very good at giving some specific examples from your experience so far when things haven't gone quite well, but when you're looking at companies today, are there any big glaring, most common mistakes that you see people doing when it comes to their overall marketing? 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say the the thing that I get frustrated about with many brands, not all brands, would be still catching up to the right idea of the balance between short-term investment and long-term investment. But intrinsically, marketeers exist to generate and accelerate growth for the company. That is that is the job, right? Bread and butter, this is why marketeers exist. They don't exist to create a beautiful campaign or, you know, a beautiful brand. You know, our job is to create sustainable business growth. And I don't think we're quite at the point yet where many marketers have been able to justify to the business investment in brand marketing. Because, you know, if goes back to, you know, I guess Philip Kotler, who's aka the godfather of marketing, and he said, you know, if you're not creating a brand, you're basically marketing a commodity, right? And I think, you know, in an economic climate where we need to deliver short-term performance, there's a struggle to justify investing in brand marketing. The reason that frustrates me is that 95% of your customers are out of market at any given time. They're not in the buying cycle, certainly not you know, in the B2B marketing world. So what ends up happening is that a lot of marketers are investing a majority of their budget on the 5% who are in market. That's just crazy, right? Mm. Why would I invest most of my budget on the 5% that are in market to drive short-term sales? So this is why, you know, for me, marketers are there to generate future demand because the 95% that's the kind of future demand stuff. So it frustrates me because there's an imbalance of investment. There's an, a slight uh, obsession with the allure of short-term metrics and short-term performance and not enough sort of focus on you know building future demand. And I think that's because marketers struggle to justify it they don't know how to justify it to the business. I'm not talking about all marketers, some brands out there that do really well, but they don't know how to justify it because how are you going to put a metric on something that hasn't happened yet, mm-hmm. right? You're saying, I'd like you to invest a million pounds, 10 million pounds, whatever, on something that I can't tell you is going to work tomorrow, right? But I, I think, you know, and I hear this time and time again, a lot of marketers, B2C, B2B, I just don't know how to justify that investment because the board need me to deliver today, today being sort of next three months, six months. I want to see the returns now. So I think that's the bit that sort of frustrates me. I've gone full circle. To be very honest with you, Claudia, when when we started off doing what we did 20 years ago, Social media, LinkedIn didn't exist, right? In any kind of guise or capacity. So the recruitment and staffing role was one of get people on the telephone and meet them. And people that were really, really good in a PLC that I learned my trade in, which just did that way more, way better than other people. And marketing was always like, oh, do you mean the job boards? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Whereas, as we know, wow, um, how the times have changed. And the reality was that our marketing team 
the way that they position it by describing the long-term value, the trust that gets developed by creating an aligned market, aligned brand that mm. adds value to customers has been one of the great areas of development that I know that I've gone through in terms of learning as an individual, but it always comes back to that when you're sat in a finance meeting or an exec meeting where it's like, right, we're looking at the spend, we're looking at the balance, making sure that's right. Now, wow, marketing are proposing this as next year's budget. And that seems like a lot. So what ROI are we expecting of that? One of the questions I was really looking forward to asking you, Claudia, was because you're absolutely right. Short-termism comes into every quarter you want to see rising and anything that detracts from that quarter or that year, uh, we sure we want to be doing it. So what in terms of, and of course, it's going to be different per company, per business model, all the rest of it, but the metrics where ROI isn't, you know, you're not able to show it within a six month or even 12 month period. Yeah. What are the metrics? Are there some metrics that you've always kind of stuck by that you maintain that these are really good things to be looking at? I'd yeah. love to get your take on this. Yeah, of course. And look, this is the age old debate, right? And it's getting hotter and hotter. And as you said, each sector is going to be different. I mean, if you look at automotive, you know, the automotive industry knows the power of brand because they have to invest in brand because you know mostly people aren't in market looking for a car today so they're investing in future you know demand when to be top of mind right to build that mental availability when it comes to b2b and of course i work at a marketing effectiveness consultancy so what we do day in day out is help our clients put those metrics in place and these are B2C brands, put those metrics in place and really understand, you know, how well a campaign works. You know, if you look at Christmas, the Christmas ads, right, John Lewis, Arts and Spencers, etc., they're really sort of brand campaigns. Yes, they're sort of in place to generate a bit of short-term performance for the Christmas period, but they have and this is tons of research. Look up Peter Field and Les Binet, the long and short of it. Any marketeer should read that research, bring it to their CEO, by the way, and kind of say, look, here's a here's a proof that long-term uh, investing in brand works. But those ads do have a long-term impact on, on sales, right? It's about mental availability because our attention spans are shorter and shorter and shorter than they ever were before. So we need to sort of hit people with frequency of messaging, but also branding that resonates and stays top of mind. When I think of, you know, who I'm going to partner from a recruitment perspective, you only want that one name to pop up. And that can only, only be achieved via brand marketing you know, by having that brand top of mind over a period of time. In the B2B marketing world, you know, there are loads of metrics that you can gather over time. And I think this really is more of a job of actually capturing the metrics over time and doing test and learn. So as a marketer in B2B, if I think back you know, 10, 11 years ago when I started at Game Theory, even as a marketing effectiveness consultancy, I was finding it hard to, to sell in the um, brand investment. But 
but you have to mobilize the organization first to run the test and learn so that you then have the data to then be able to go back to over the years. You know, which brands came in as a result of your marketing over the years. And you can track all of that stuff. It's not hugely sophisticated or requires any shiny MarTech, but you have to track the data over time. So I'd say start small. If you're just trying to convince the board, start small, test and learn, but then make sure you're keeping an eye on tracking and mobilize the organization with benchmarks of other organizations that are running brand advertising and research, you know, research such as long and short of it to kind of go, okay, we know that, you know, this works. We did a piece actually at Gain Theory called um, the Profitability Report. And that also kind of shows that, you know, investment in brand has a long-term impact on various channels. You've mentioned something a couple of times, Claudia, that I was really looking forward to hearing more about mental availability. We're inundated with social, or well, you can be inundated with social media. There's busy home lives, there's busy work lives. I re- really reckon maybe you're going to say, Pete, that's nothing what, what I'm talking about whatsoever. But I really recognize that sometimes when I'm biking home and I've got these kind of like safe earphones where I can listen, but still be listening to what's going on the road, of course, just for the safety campaigners out there. But there are some times where it's, the day has been so full on, there's been so much learning, so much going on, yeah. that I listen to absolutely nothing, even though it's a time that I love to learn in, because yeah. I've re- recognized that there's, n- there's no more room. There's no more room at the end. <laughs> you just need to switch off and all the rest of it. When you talk about mental availability from a marketing perspective, is there anything close to what I'm talking about there? Just give, give me a bit of insight if you would. Mental availability is about saying it's kind of, yes, it does have a link to what you're saying because essentially we can only sort of, as human brains, we need a shorthand to remember things, right? So you're in a supermarket in an aisle, you're faced with hundreds of bottles of shampoo you're not going to study every single label and like nowadays, I suppose a lot of us are studying the prices, but you know, you're not studying every detail before you make that decision. You want to make that decision quickly. You want to get your shampoo and you want to get out. And so this is where mental, mental availability kicks in. If that brand has done its job correctly, it will have a place in your availability right, and your mental availability. And that's what branding is all about, right? And that's why Nurofen can charge, what, two, three times more than supermarket ibuprofen, right? So given the choice, again, perhaps in current economic climate, we would probably all all go for the uh, supermarket brand. But, you know, people choose Nurofen because it's a brand. And that has mental availability. Okay. And a similar thing, I remember hearing that Indeed's marketing budget being well over like a billion a year or something absolutely eye-watering and thinking that is an obscene amount of money, but yet they plaster it everywhere all the time for that exact reason. Oh, I need a job. Oh, what shall I do? I might go and check out Indeed or whatever the case may be. So yeah. that is what you're talking about there. It's the spend, it's the repetition to make sure that mental availability, when you think of one thing, that's why it's there. Okay. And the problem is there's so many options right nowadays for everything you know if I think recruitment when I started in marketing however many years ago 20 odd years ago you know there were probably really only sort of five brands that I would go to to look for a job 
so many options now, so many options, right? And it's like you've got to cut through, but you've got to cut through not in that moment in time. You've got to cut through over a period of time with frequency and not forgetting word of mouth as well nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of the power of word of mouth and the power of recommendation, and that's obviously a brand marketing touch point as well. You've just got to cut through because, like you say, you get home and you've just too much going on. I'd love to know how you approach the development of marketing campaigns that address issues related to social justice and equity, what steps you take to ensure that these campaigns are effective amongst all of the other, I guess, business as usual work that goes on? I think, first of all, there are lots of swim lanes that you could sort of take part in. There are so many swim lanes from a inclusivity, from a social equity point of view. I think, first of all, it goes back to what are you about as a brand, as a company? What's your vision? What's your mission? What are your values? And which swim lanes are you going to dive into? Because you can't talk about everything, right? You can't get involved in everything. You've got to also be authentically invested in that subject. So, you know, you've got your shiny marketing campaign, right? But then also, really, you've got to be able to deliver, got to be able to deliver against that. So I think it's really important to pick your swim lanes, commit to those swim lanes from a topical perspective, and then consistently deliver against those swim lanes from an annual perspective. Don't just pop up when pride happens. Don't just pop up, you know, it just making sure that you're not really sort of doing it for marketing's sake. That's kind of really, really important because huge backlash. We've all learned from many brands who popped up when Black Lives Matter. And it's like, okay, well, you've never talked about that before. Why are you now talking about it? It feels very inauthentic. And I think Mm. consumers, customers, they can smell BS, right? So I think that's really important. Uh, I think you're bang on. And as you say, if it's things that you care about as an organization that you talk about semi-continually, it shouldn't be about bandwagon jumping. I think that's been a great advancement the last couple of years where people really cottoned on to what jumping on bandwagons look like, what inauthentic behavior looks like. So I think, yeah, I think that'll be some... Some excellent takeaways that listeners will be going, mm, yes, all right, I, I, I see how we need to approach this now, Claudia. Thank you. Any new technologies and advancement that you're most excited about? Crikey, AI and automation. There isn't really a day that goes by <laughs> where I don't hear marketing and these conversations happening about you know what's going to be taken over in inverted commas versus what's a really incredibly exciting new area for it. G- g- give, me your, give me your experience view on it. I mean, look, AI is exciting, right? Generative AI is exciting because essentially AI has been around for a while. This is not like a new thing. What's happened recently with AI is that it's been democratized or given a consumer voice. It's been running for like, I mean, 10 years. Uh, machine learning, AI, it's it's been around, right? So I think the exciting bit from a marketeer's perspective is, you know, I think the idea generation, 
the starting, you know, it's kind of the speeding up of processes so that you don't have to spend time on certain portions of the process. So whether that's creative idea generation or whether that's, you know, data processing, if you're looking at data analytics, whether that's, you know, to a certain degree, sort of creative generation in itself. I think there's lots of exciting applications across a whole raft of uh, of things and, you know, productivity, for example, as well, so that your teams can then focus on perhaps the value add to that process, the strategy, the execution, etc. The only thing I will say about technology, and it's, you know, I saw a depressing stat recently. I think it was something like, 24% of marketeers' budgets are forecast to be spent on technology next year versus about, I think it was 15% on media. And I think that's depressing because if you're spending more money on the technology that's getting your message to the audience versus getting the message to the audience itself, right? <laughs> Which is why we're here and we mm. need to grow the business to make sure... I think there's something slightly wrong about that. I think the even more depressing thing was about 44% of marketing MarTech licenses were also going unused. So sort of people buying into MarTech technology going, oh, this is a nice, shiny new thing. And then it's just kind of the license. They're not using it. License is expired. And I think you know, we've got to sort of, when we buy into technology, we've really got to ask ourselves and evaluate and put some criteria in place. Who's my audience? What's the business need? Will this technology help me close a business gap? Do I have the resources to sustain this technology, right? I honestly have um, horror stories from friends in the marketing world. Oh, we've spent a million quid on X platform, we can't get it working because we can't galvanize people to to use it, you know, and then we've sort of invested a million pounds on something that's not being used. And it kind of brings tears to my eyes because I'm thinking, well, you have spent that million pounds marketing yourselves and actually generating an ROI. So I, I get excited about technology that's, that sort of has a place, but I get slightly depressed about people jumping on shiny new objects all the time. A couple of quick fire questions that I'd absolutely love to ask. It's been as interesting conversations as I knew it would be. And I'm going to ask a tough question here, Claudia, and maybe like some other guests that you might do a bit of cheating here. What's the best book, podcast, or movie that you would recommend that you've taken some long-lasting learns from? I mean, I'm a reader. So I do love reading avidly because like you, I get home and I've got a million things on my head and I need to unplug for a little bit. And I believe in the power of storytelling as well. There's an author that I'm completely obsessed with at the moment, Elizabeth Strout. The way she weaves stories is just so elegant and the power of you know her narrative is, is beautiful. She has a, a few books. So it's really hard to choose one of them. Oh, William or would be one or Lucy Barton's another one. But I really highly recommend if anyone out there is a reader, check out Elizabeth Strout. Another great book, more in the sort of business world context, 
uh, is The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader, which a friend of mine, Thomas Barter, wrote. Amazing book. If you're a marketer, you should read it because what it says is that here are the 12 things that you should be focusing on as a marketeer, not only to sort of advance the company, but advance your career as well. And it's got some fantastic gems there, slightly sort of not rocket science, but I think we forget them sometimes. Like, you know, focus on the metrics that matter, mobilize the organization, you know, listen to your customer. But they've done research behind this book and and actually put some percentages against which powers of the marketing leader are going to really excel the growth of the company, but also you as a marketing leader. Awesome. Thank you for those. And and definitely a couple of new names there, Claudia. So I'll be checking those out and adding it to my not insignificant list of books. The only problem is spending an hour a week speaking to fascinating people that is that I've always got more than I could possibly get around to. But where there's a will, there's a way, right? <laughs> Maybe one day a, a sunny beachy holiday with no little uh, whippersnappers running around trying to grab my attention, I'll be able to get to just these things. And finally, when it comes to brand positioning, marketing itself, if there's one learn you'd want our listeners to take away, and bear in mind, this isn't a podcast specifically for chief marketing officers. There's a lot of senior leadership that listens. There's CEOs, there's founders, there's all manner of people. What, what, what would be the one learn you want people to take away? Do you know what? Actually, I think the one learning or the one thing that I would really recommend any CEO, you don't have to be a marketer, right? Because essentially the CEO is kind of like the lead, the CMO anyway. <laughs> well, they should be, right? to a certain degree, is really know your story. Like as a brand, what's your story? And I always say to people, what are you about? Like sit down, write it out by hand, shorthand, type it out. What's your story? What's your company story? Because once you've got that in hand and stories, obviously you've got the challenge, you know, the kind of solution, the story, the classic story arch, once you've got that nailed, you've effectively got your go-to-market positioning, right? Because that kind of hones in on why you exist. You don't need fancy PowerPoint decks and here's a brand strategy. Of course, at some point you need that, but just sit down and like really have a think about your story. Absolutely love that because, uh, as you say, when you've been busy building day to day, month to month, year to year, working hard, hitting some awards if you're lucky enough to be able to, when have you actually stopped and done it? Never. And do you know what, Claudia? I'm going to do exactly that because we've got a very nice end of quarter meeting coming up in a couple of weeks' time. And I'm wondering, like, hmm, does everybody know the same story that it has been? And uh, and if not, let's make sure that they know it exactly as it's been. So uh, thank you personally on that one as well. <laughs> thank you so much for coming in, Claudia, and sharing your journey and your leadership learns with us today. I know that there'll be loads that will resonate with listeners. And like me, they'll be taking away some valuable ideas. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network. Claudia, thank you so much for coming in once again. Pleasure, Peter. Really enjoyed that. Thank you.